Welcome to the teaching ministry at Calvary PSL. Please join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message in the name of Jesus. All right, so in our message two weeks ago, we saw 3,000 people turn to Christ on the day of Pentecost. And so Peter told them in Acts 2.38, he said, repent, right, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what these Jews did. They repented and they were baptized in the name of Jesus. Now, this is crazy because in that culture 2,000 years ago on the temple courts, they knew that if they went through with baptism in the name of Jesus, that they would be ostracized from the Jewish community, they would lose their jobs, they would get kicked out of the synagogue, and yet, by the hundreds, they lined up at the mikvahs. They lined up at the stone water tanks which, are, which archeologists have, uh, have dug up around the southern end of the Temple Mount. Again, I'll take you there if you ever go to Israel with us and show you where these people in Acts 2 got baptized. And so it's an exciting day on the day of Pentecost. By the way, before we move any further, let me just say that we're gonna have a baptism uh, next weekend. And so if you have not been baptized, everybody say the word since. Since you gave your life to Jesus, you need to follow the Lord's commandment. Nowhere in the Bible is infant baptism taught. It is a church teaching, not a biblical teaching. What does the Bible teach? The Bible teaches that we were lost, we were sinners, the Holy Spirit came, convicted us, showed us our need for a savior, we chose to turn to Christ, he came in, he saved us, and then the Bible says you're baptized. Very clear in the scriptures. And so uh, if you have not been baptized since you've received Christ as your savior, remember this, it's a commandment of God, and we would love to help you out as you obey God's command. And so you just go to calvarypsl.com, you click on next steps, you click on baptism, you sign up, somebody from Pastor Matt's team will give you a call this week. Okay, so back to the message. On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people turned to Christ. And I wonder if the apostles were kind of looking at each other saying, wow, that's a lot of people. What are we gonna do now? What are we gonna focus on now? And at some point, they figured it out. Because in Acts chapter two, verse 42, by way of review, check it out. Acts 2, 42, it says, and they, that's 3,120 followers of Jesus now. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. And so, what did the early disciples focus on? We covered this two weeks ago. They focused on the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. And so I'm not gonna reteach the sermon from two weeks ago. If you weren't here, you can download the podcast and listen to it. But this is what the early church did. This is what healthy churches do. And when they focused on those four things, God showed up in a very big way. Look at the very... Uh, last verse in Acts chapter two, verse 47b. Okay, so as they're focusing on these things, it says, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And so as the church focused on these four things, the Lord did his part. 
He began to move and convict and draw and, re and regenerate and save people. And this church blew up. And so now we start in chapter three, verse one. It says, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of, what's the word there? Prayer. prayer. Not sacrifice, the hour of prayer. The ninth hour. And so the Jews observed three times of prayer. 9 a.m., 12 p.m., 3 p.m. They um, had these times of prayer. The Bible says that Peter and John went up to the temple during the ninth hour. Okay, for the Jews, the day started at 6 a.m. And so you add nine hours to 6 a.m., and what hour do you come to? 3 p.m. And so it's 3 p.m. in your Bibles, Acts chapter three, verse one. According to the Jews, this is, quote unquote, the evening. And so Peter and John are going up to the temple for the time of evening prayer. It's very interesting to me that Peter and John were Christians and yet they were still Jews. And so this is why they chose to observe this Jewish time of prayer at 3 p.m. at the temple. Now it's also very interesting to me that it doesn't say that they went up to the temple during the time of the evening sacrifice. It says that they went up to the temple during the time of the evening prayer. And so why didn't they go up to the temple during the time of the evening sacrifice? Why didn't they go up to the temple at that time when the priest would take a male lamb, one year old, without blemish and without spot, slit its throat, and offer that lamb as a burnt offering for the sins of the people? Why would Peter and John not go to the temple at that time and for that ceremony? Well, I'll let Peter answer the question for you. It's because Peter said, we are redeemed with the precious blood of who? Christ, not animals. All the Old Testament animal sacrifices, the burnt offerings, the sin offerings, typified the Lamb of God who was slain for our sins. With the precious blood of Christ were redeemed, like that of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And so since Peter and John knew they're no longer under the law, they knew the time of burnt offerings and sin offerings was, was over. They knew that Christ, the Lamb of God, had been slain for the sins of all people, Jews and Gentiles. And they knew that that blood sacrifice was sufficient for the forgiveness of our sins, past, present, and future. So they would not dare go to the temple during the time of sacrifice, but they did go to the temple during the time of prayer. Amen. And so it says now in verse two, as they're walking into the temple, that a man lame from birth was being carried. And so maybe a couple friends are carrying him on a cot. Maybe he's just got, you know, doing a piggyback ride on the back of one of his friends. We don't know but we know that he's lame from birth and he's being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. And so as Peter and John were walking into the temple, a man lame from birth was being carried. You know, this big crowd of people, they're going into the temple 3 p.m. Here's Peter and John. Here's this guy, piggyback ride, and, and he's being set down 
um, at the beautiful gate. They're all going into the temple area. And so I wanna show this to you. Uh, if you go with me to Israel, we'll take you to Jerusalem. We'll take you to the model of the temple. Um, this, this, by the way, is probably the size of half this room. And um, there's stadium seats around it, and we go around and we talk about the different places. And so right now, where you're sitting, you're in the Kidron Valley, you're looking from east to west. The temple, Herod's temple, which he started to build in 20 BC, it was not done until 60-something AD. It was absolutely gorgeous, and it was facing the east. And so the gold plates would shine and reflect the sun as the sun was coming up every morning. But nonetheless, the court of the Gentiles is that first court that you see, the court of the Gentiles could fit 200,000 people. The inner court's probably three football fields large. It's just massive. So this is not really doing justice to what you would have seen 2,000 years ago. But nonetheless, Peter and John are going up to the temple at 3 p.m. and they're with a big crowd and they're heading from the court of the Gentiles to the court of women through the beautiful gate. How many of you guys see the brass doors? Say amen if you see the brass doors. And so those, that's the beautiful gate. It was called beautiful because it was big, ginormous, double doors made of Corinthian brass. And it was at that gate, every single day, some friends would lay down their friend who was lame from birth. And this guy would ask for alms. What better place to ask for alms than in a religious place, especially when there's some people who think erroneously that you gotta work your way to heaven. And so he's where uh, the beautiful gate was and he's asking for alms. He's asking for charitable gifts. And so let's see what happens here. And by the way, uh, Acts 4.22 says this guy is over 40 years old. And so apparently he's been doing this for a very long time. He's over 40 years old. He's sitting at the beautiful gate every single day. How many times did Jesus Christ pass this guy? And yet Jesus did not heal him. And by the way, how many other lame people were there in Jerusalem at this time? And yet Peter didn't go around healing everybody. And so I just want you to think about uh, these things biblically as opposed to sometimes what you see on TV. And so we see now in verse three that this lame man sitting at the beautiful gate, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. This guy's thinking, all right, I might get a shekel here. Verse six, but Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand, the hand that was extended, asking for a gift. He took him by the right hand and raised him up and immediately, medical terms used by Luke, the author of Acts, who was a doctor, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. I love eight. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. This is what you call a genuine miracle right here. Accomplished in the name of Jesus Christ. More on that later. But let's stop and think about this guy for a moment. After he received his miracle, it was, he said, it says he was so happy, he walked, he leapt. 
and he jumped and he praised the Lord. Do you guys understand sometimes when we're in worship and some people are, are maybe jumping a little bit and they get their hands up and they're excited and they're shouting? You know why? Because God has saved them from a horrible past and made them new and they're actually happy about it. And that's a wonderful thing. And so, man, if you've had a great life your whole life and you're just kind of standing there yawning uh, during worship and you look over at somebody who's really happy, don't be a Pharisee and judge that person. You have never walked in their shoes. You don't know where they've been and you don't know what they've been delivered from. Let them praise the Lord. Let them worship God. And so, man, in order to understand the height of this man's current happiness, we gotta get a sense of the depth of his former sadness. He had been lame from birth. Over 40 years, his feet and ankles didn't work. And so, can you imagine how discouraging that would be? I mean, as a kid, when his friends went off to run and play and jump, he couldn't join them. He had to just sit and watch his friends. Later in life, when those same friends grew up and they started their careers as farmers or fishermen or shepherds, he couldn't join them and make an honest living, no. He had to rely on somebody to put him down at a gate and he had to beg for a living. I mean, how demoralizing would that be? And I'm not saying he was dishonest and begging, but man, how demoralizing would that be? And so after 40 years of being carried around, it's no wonder when he was finally healed He's not just walking, he's leaping, he's jumping, he's shouting, he's praising the Lord. And that drew a lot of attention, all right? So we pick it up now in verse nine. It says, and all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. They're like, the crowd around there going to the time of evening prayer, they're like, hey, isn't that the guy who uh, used to, uh, every single day, beg for money at the beautiful gate? Well, he's not begging now, look at him go, wow. This guy's just skipping around, woo-hoo, praise the Lord. Look at him now, what's going on? I don't know, come on, let's go find out. And they ran to find out what's going on. And it says in verse 11, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together. Now remember, 200,000 people can fit on the temple courts. We have no idea how many people are in this crowd, but we do know that 3,000 people got saved on the day of Pentecost, and later on, um, here in the next one or two chapters, it's gonna say that the church got to be 5,000 men, not including women and children. And so this is, this is hundreds of people running to find out what's going on. And they ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And so after this guy stopped jumping around, he joined Peter and John on Solomon's portico or Solomon's porch. All right, and so if we could kind of go back in time 2,000 years ago, Solomon's portico or porch was that long corridor that ran along the side of the court of the Gentiles and was decorated with beautiful colonnades. Uh, um, John tells us that Jesus taught in this area right here. And we're gonna find out in the next verse that Peter's gonna preach a sermon right here. 
And not only that, we know from Acts 5 verse 12 that the church met as a large group right here, at least until the Sanhedrin said, enough with this Jesus stuff. And so, remember they met in a large group setting, but they also met in homes. This is where they met in a large group setting. That's Acts chapter five, verse 12. And so the crowd gathers, the stage is now set for the main event. And the main event, ladies and gentlemen, is not the physical healing of this lame man. The main event is the spiritual healing of hundreds of people in this crowd. How many of you understand that it's a wonderful thing when God does a physical healing? And by the way, he still does physical healings today. It's a wonderful thing when God does a physical healing, but you know how much better it is when God does a spiritual healing in somebody? Physical healings are temporary. Spiritual healings go on forever. And we had the privilege and the honor just a little while ago in between services to lead a married couple they said, I said, do you wanna give your lives to Christ? Do you wanna become Christians? They said, yes, right here, in tears, gave their life to Christ. We praise God whenever that happens and thank him for that. And so Peter's gonna start preaching now and look at verse 12. It says, when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, can you see him standing on Solomon's porch? lifting his voice up to hundreds and hundreds of people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us, me and John? As though by our own power or piety we have made him walk. No, verse 13, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. I love it, I love it, I love it. If you're new to the Bible, new to Christianity, ladies and gentlemen, that is the one and only true God. Listen to me, everybody look at me. It's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the only God. He's the only God that's alive. Other, all other gods are dead. In fact, they don't even exist. All other religions are false. This is the true God of the Bible. You say, that's not politically correct. Well, here's some news. I don't care about being politically correct. I've got to stand before the Lord someday, right? I've got to give an account. And so if I'm going to stand before the Lord someday and after preaching that, oh, everybody's God and everybody's religion is equally fine, um, no, I don't care about pleasing people. I've got to please one person, and that's Jesus Christ at the end of time. And so on the authority of God's word... He says, Peter, without embarrassment, without fear, it's the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Amen. The God of our fathers. Glorified his servant, everybody say his name. Jesus. Jesus. Now say it like you mean it. Jesus. Jesus. Whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. Right, you remember everybody? When you stood and shouted, crucify him, crucify him. Well, verse 14, you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer. Remember Barabbas? Asked for a murderer to be granted to you and you killed the author of life. What you have to understand is Jesus was not just a man. He was not just a prophet. He was God 
in flesh, the author of life. And he says, you murdered your Messiah, you murdered your maker, you killed your creator. Whom God raised from the dead, and he says again, to this we are witnesses. And so Peter's always saying, were eyewitnesses, we saw him alive after he had been dead. Verse 16, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And so Peter said to the crowd, why is everybody staring at me and John? It wasn't because of our power and piety, right? Our strength and spirituality, our might and morality. No, it's not about us at all. We're not the ones who made this guy whole. We're not the ones that gave strength and power and life to his ankles and his feet. Peter had to set the record straight because the crowd wanted to praise him and John. Isn't it sad when people, instead of praising God, who's the only great physician, isn't it sad when people, instead of praising God, praise his instruments? And that leads you to your next point, if you're taking notes, and by the way, the evangelical American church in our culture desperately needs this point. Praise the Lord, not his instruments. Praise the Lord, not his instruments. Imagine if you went in for open heart surgery and it was successful and they wheeled you into the recovery room. And a couple days later, your doctor comes in to see how you're doing and says, hey, how you doing? And you say, oh, doc, <laughs> oh man, I feel so much better. Um, doc, do you happen to have any of the surgical instruments that you used? Do you happen to have any of those? And he's there with his big white coat and big pocket, and he's like, well, yeah, I didn't turn these in. I actually have my forceps right here, and you reach over and grab the forceps, and you're like, oh, forceps, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. If you acted that way, what do you think your doctor would do? He'd say to the nurse, take him from the recovery room to the psych ward right now, right? Why? Ladies and gentlemen, it's very obvious. It's because it wasn't the instruments that did such a wonderful job during your surgery. It was the surgeon who skillfully moved the instruments to repair your heart. What's the point? The point is Peter was just an instrument. It's the surgeon, Jesus, behind Peter, working through Peter, that does this miracle, a genuine miracle, in order to draw the crowd so the gospel could be preached. And so, too often in Christian circles, instead of praising God, we praise his instruments. We get all caught up in personalities, and begin to idolize people. Instead of following the Lord, we follow mere men. And I've seen it. You're in a Christian gathering, an evangelical gathering, and all of a sudden, you know, that famous pastor or evangelist or speaker or author comes in the door, and everybody's like, oh, what? What are we doing? The guy's just an instrument. The lady's just an instrument. And so did you know that the church of Corinth was guilty of this very thing? And by the way, the church of Corinth was the carnal church. 
they were all into personality cults. They were all into idolizing preachers. They were all into, I follow Apollos. Oh, Apollos. Oh, I follow Paul. Oh, Paul. Oh. And Paul's like, get over it. And he's got to write them and rebuke them. Check out what Paul said to them in 1 Corinthians 3. He said, what then is Apollos? What then is Paul? And everybody shout out the next word. There you go. Servants, through whom you believed. I planted, Apollos watered, but who gave the increase or the growth? God. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. Get over yourself. But only God who gives the growth. And so who should we get all excited about and praise? Apollos? Paul? Some modern day pastor, evangelist, speaker, author? No, we should get all excited about, and that's why I'm so happy in this 11 o'clock service, you guys are so excited during worship for the Lord. That's who we should get excited about, the Lord. Why, because God alone is the one who does miracles. Ladies and gentlemen, listen. God alone is the one who does miracles. God alone is the one who regenerates hearts. God alone is the one who changes lives. God is the one who causes growth. That's why the psalmist said this, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Peter's like, why are you looking at me? Look at Jesus. Look at verse 16 again. I wanna park here for a little while. Verse 16 says, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Peter told the lame guy back in verse six as he stretched out his hand for an offering, he said, silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Rise up and walk. And it was through faith in his name that the man was made whole. Not faith in Peter's name, faith in Jesus' name. Why? Because Jesus has the name above all names. He has all authority. Ladies and gentlemen, what authority did Peter have in and of himself? None. If I'm a private in time of war and I'm up at the front lines with my unit doing battle and bullets are flying and as a private, I say to the guys, charge that hill, that's an order. (laughs) Well, what are they gonna do? They're gonna laugh who you think you are. But if the captain came up to the front lines and said, charge that hill, that's an order. What would the soldiers do? You tell me. Charge the hill. Why? Because of the rank that the captain holds. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus Christ holds the highest rank in the universe. God has given him a name above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. His name is above all names. And the good news is we get to pray in his name. Check out what Jesus said uh, to the disciples in John's gospel. He said, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, Clarification, right? 
especially in our culture, the clarification is simply this. Saying in Jesus' name at the end of our prayers was never meant to be a magic wand in order to get whatever we want. God, I need that Lamborghini. In Jesus' name. You think God hears that prayer? No. Okay, so I want to park here for a little while. I want to talk to you about Jesus' name and what does that mean, in Jesus' name. And so, first of all, we got to talk about who is praying. And second of all, we got to talk about who's being prayed to. So if you're with me, say amen here. Amen. Now, this will help you, okay? And so, first of all, who is praying? We're talking about what, is Je- what does it mean to pray in Jesus' name. When Jesus said those words, he was not talking to the crowd. He was talking to his disciples. It's called the upper room discourse. It can be found in John chapter 13 through John chapter 17. It's an intimate conversation between Jesus and his disciples. What's a disciple? Jesus said, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And so a true disciple is someone who denies himself. It's amazing to me. I've been saved since I was 17 years old. I'm 52. What is that, 35 years? Okay, so for, by God's grace, for 35 years, I've been walking with the Lord. But did you know that even now, if I'm not in the presence of God, having my time with the Lord every single day, my flesh reverts right back to the old Mike who thinks the world revolves around me like that in my marriage in my family among my co-workers and friends if I'm not careful it's right back to the old Mike Jesus said if any man would follow me let him deny himself that sin nature that selfish nature that we all received from Adam and let him take up his cross. That means not that we wear a cross, though that's fine. It means that we publicly identify with Jesus even when people laugh, scorn, hit you on Facebook, talk about you behind your back, or persecute you. You still openly live for Jesus. You take up your cross. You take up that Symbol of suffering, you suffer for the Lord. You deny yourself, you take up your cross, and you follow Jesus. You actually read what he says in the Gospels, and you live it out with the help of the Holy Spirit. And so now we're understanding when you pray in Jesus' name, first of all, who's the one praying? He's talking to his disciples. And any man or woman, teenager, who's doing those three things, they do not pray for stuff in order to satisfy their flesh, their ego, or their selfish nature. And so when we pray in Jesus' name, what does it mean? Here's what it means right here. The name of Jesus speaks of who he is. His name is who he is. His person, his power, and his will. So when we pray in Jesus' name, we're praying according to his person, power, and will. In other words, when we pray in Jesus' name, we're a disciple. We're saying in Jesus' name, we're supposed to be praying according to who he is, his person. Who was Jesus? 
Jesus said, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So he set this example. It's not about me. It's about God and others and serving others. And did you know at the end of the upper room discourse in John chapter 17, when Jesus prayed that whole chapter, it wasn't about me, 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 me. It was about the disciples. He's praying for them. And he's honoring the Father. And we gotta follow his example in our prayers. It can't be me, 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 me. It needs to be about worshiping God and praying for others. And then yes, at the end, you can ask for stuff for yourself. We're praying in Jesus' name while we're praying according to who he is. He's a servant. We're praying um, according to his power. We already talked about his name is above every name. We're praying according to his will. There he is in the Garden of Gethsemane sweating great drops of blood. And guess what? He does not want to go to the cross. Father, take this cup from me. I don't want to do this. And you know the rest of the prayer. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he sets the example of submission to God's will. And when we pray according to God's will, John says, then, praise the Lord, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, and we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. So how can I know that I'm gonna get what I ask for in prayer? Because I end my prayer in Jesus' name? No. It's because as a disciple who's denying yourself, taking up your cross and following Jesus, you're praying according to the person, power, and will of Jesus. If that makes sense, say amen. amen. Okay, so that's the truth of praying in Jesus' name. Peter's still preaching. Look at verse 17. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance. You know, as far as crucifying your Christ, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. And so Peter told this Jewish crowd, hey, you acted in ignorance in crucifying your Christ, but guess what? God wrote about it in our, in our own scriptures. The prophets said Christ would suffer. And so if you're new to the Bible or new to Christianity and you wanna know where in the Old Testament it says that the Christ would suffer. I'll put some stuff on the screens. Maybe you could take a, a screenshot with your phone. I just wanna let you know that in Genesis 3.15, that's the first messianic prophecy. And so God says, um, concerning the seed of the, women, of the woman, the Messiah, Satan will bruise your heel. That's a temporary wound. That's a, a prophecy of the cross. But you, the seed of the woman, will crush his head fatal, mortal wound. How many of you are glad that one day Satan will be cast into the lake of fire? Thank you, God. Stop bothering us. Stop attacking our church. Stop attacking um, everything that we're trying to do for Jesus. Not just us, but millions of churches around the world. Over. Psalm 22, uh, Christ quotes Psalm 22, one from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David's writing 1000 BC about the persecution and suffering that he's going through. That's the near fulfillment, but the far fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment is Jesus. You can read it for yourself. Isaiah 53, he was bruised for our iniquities. He was crushed for our sins. The chastisement of our uh, sin was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. 
That's 700 years BC. Zechariah 12.10 is the second coming where the Jews look on him who they pierced and they repent and they mourn. And so that's just a, um, a little bit of evidence. And so if you're with me here, say amen, okay? Amen. Check it out. Peter's preaching to hundreds of people, Solomon's porch. The evidence is mounting. They see a lame man dancing, jumping like a deer. That's evidence. They hear Peter say, we saw Jesus alive after he had been dead. We're eyewitnesses of his resurrection. That's evidence. Then he says, take your own Jewish scriptures and read about Christ's sufferings in your own Bibles written hundreds of years before it happened. That's evidence. And so what's the only thing left to do? The only thing left to do is what Peter says in verse 19. And he has the audacity to once again use the R word. What's the first word in verse 19? Shout it out. Repent. Repent. Therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Peter says the same thing in chapter three as what he said to the crowd in chapter two. Repent. What does the word mean? I'll do it again. I did it two weeks ago. Metanoio, to change one's mind for better, heartily to amend with abhorrence one's past sins. Ladies and gentlemen, please understand that when you repeat a prayer after a preacher, but then go off and live your life for yourself, and there's no change, you're not saved. There is fruit. Everybody say fruit. fruit. Everybody say evidence. evidence. I got to make you say it because I don't want anyone to say you're preaching works. I'm not preaching works. But the fruit and the evidence of a genuine conversion is we don't love our sin. We hate our sin. We abhor our sin. And so... We change our mind about our sin. We change our mind about the Savior. He's not some good teacher or some blasphemer. He's God in the flesh. He's the Messiah. He's the author of life. And so he tells them, I want you to repent so your sins can be blotted out. How many of you are glad that your sins... Well, first of all, if, you're, if you know that you know that you're a born-again Christian, please raise your hand right now. Okay, isn't that a beautiful sight? And so what you need to know on the authority of God's word is that your sins in the name of Jesus have been blotted out, washed away. Thank you for your love, dear God, all by his grace. And so that's what he's telling them to do. Repent so your sins can be blotted out. Um, And then because we have three minutes left, I'm going to read verses seven. um, I'm sorry, I'm gonna read verses 20 to the end of the chapter. And I'm just gonna comment but stay with me to the end, okay? So if you're looking at verse 20, say amen. amen. Okay, here we go. That, he tells him, repent, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. You say, I need some refreshing. Repent. <laughs> that he may send the Christ, second coming, appointed for you. And so Jewish crowd, you need to repent so Jesus can come back. Verse 21, whom heaven must receive... He's up there right now, sitting at the right hand. Until the time for restoring all things. That's the kingdom age. About which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago, Isaiah, Jeremiah, etc. And so he's telling this Jewish crowd, you need to repent so that Jesus comes back and so that he sets up his kingdom. And when you read the rest of the New Testament, Romans 11, 26, book of Revelation, you see that one day Israel's gonna repent. 
The 144,000 Jewish evangelists are gonna lead many of them to the Lord. Jesus is gonna come back. They're gonna see the one they pierced. They're gonna mourn, they're gonna repent. All Israel will be saved. Jesus will come back. He'll set up his kingdom. That's what Peter's talking about here. Then he, he, he um, references their greatest leader, Moses, verse 22, said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. This is Deuteronomy 18, where Moses prophesied the coming of the Messiah. Verse 23, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet, the coming Messiah, shall be destroyed from the people. And 1,500 years after Moses said this, Messiah came. You tell me, did Israel listen to him? No, no. But God is a God of second chances. He loves us, so he's given them another chance. Verse 24, and all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. He says to the Jewish crowd, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers saying to, shout out his name, Abraham. Abraham. Father Abraham, right, him. And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And so Peter's winding down here and he tells him about the Abrahamic covenant that God said, Abraham, look up at the sky. You see the stars through your offspring. I'm gonna make a great nation through Isaac, Jacob, Israel, and through your offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And in the fullness of time, Jesus came, the son of Abraham. Verse 26, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your, what? Wickedness. And so in the fullness of time, Jesus came, son of Abraham in the flesh, son of God in the divine nature. He died on the cross. Ladies and gentlemen, he rose again. And now he offers forgiveness and blessing to all the families of the earth. So here's how we're gonna end the service. In a moment, I'm gonna close in prayer. We're gonna have pastors and elders right here. We're gonna have prayer partners on either side. If you're here and you need prayer about anything, don't just get in your car and leave. Come and receive ministry and prayer confidentially from these awesome prayer partners. If you're here today, most important thing I've said all day, and you've never given your life to Jesus, do like the couple did after the first service. As everybody's leaving, just come on up. And we would love to share with you the love of Jesus and give you an opportunity to give your life to Christ. And then you can sign up to be baptized next weekend. You say, whoa, that's a lot. Listen, you're either in or out. I'm not talking about becoming necessarily part of this local church. I'm talking about becoming part of Christ. Christ. And so... And so you have that opportunity. As everybody stands, prayer partners, elders, come on forward. Don't forget, if you wanna make a pledge, grab a pledge card on the way out and drop it in the tithe box before you leave. Visitors, no expectations from you. Just go get your gift on the way out. We love you guys. And so Father, thank you for this 
this church service which was given in the honor of the name of Jesus Christ. Bless these people as they go and use them as lights in their community. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys.